So what do you wear? Oh my god, I'm a slut. I wear a bunch of different stuff. I'm, I've never worn the same perfume two days in a row. This is Rachel Syme. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and one of the most genuinely glamorous people I have ever met. So she always smells like some perfume or another. I love like Dior Poison and Anais Anais and I love wearing number five in the highest concentration as the oil and I like tuberose and I love gardenia and I love it to be like a cloud of that around you. I just love it. <laughs> I was the opposite of Rachel. I didn't really get perfume. I would spritz some on at the airport sometimes, but mostly I just found it all smelled perfumey. I don't think I can smell... On paper, everything just smells like chemicals to me. Yeah, well, it needs a moment to dry down. I wanted to figure out what I was missing. So I asked Rachel to take me perfume shopping at Sephora. Hence the annoying pop music you hear in the background. I'm like, I love this scent. Mmm, it's so delicious. Oh, it's kind of, I'm such a, I'm like, can't describe it. I'm like, oh, it's tuberose. Tastes- That's tuberose, what okay, you're smelling. That flower. And then there's a little ginger on the top. Okay. Whatever Rachel yeah. was experiencing, I wasn't getting it. Yeah, and so that's it. It was like I was trying to fudge my way through a wine tasting by being like, oh, yeah, this one has overtones of grape. Too sweet? I guess it just smells chemically to me. Like, it smells like cleaning solution no. to me, you know? Yeah. I thought perfume was a kind of snake oil. But basically the only thing separating one perfume from another was the design of the bottle and the name of the brand. I thought perfume was just a way for big fashion labels to make money, which it absolutely is. Like, Chanel makes a ton of money from fragrance. Dior. The places where basically, like, people can't always afford the thing, but they can afford the perfume. It's like people's um, gateway drug to get into the branding. And so I was ready to make a story that would be like, wake up, people. Perfume is a ruse. You're getting fleeced for a name and the packaging. You know, I really admire and think a lot about the artistry behind perfumes when they're made. Even, you know, any, any of these designer perfumes. This is what Rachel knew that I had yet to find out. Perfume is a key to a whole other dimension that we've all collectively Denied and forgotten. Articles of Interest, a show about what we wear. Season two. People don't realize it's fantasy. There's always this thing that you have to work extra hard to get. Mmm, and that's so good. No one dresses like a king anymore. How do you make money? That's how I make money, love. There are lots of things that we take for granted that would once have been considered luxuries. If someone forced you to surrender one of your five senses, you'd probably handily give up your sense of smell. I mean, I would. We talk about how foods are umami or spicy or how music can be soothing or energizing or cacophonous. But with scent, we don't really analyze it with a lot of nuance. The question is usually black or white. Do you like this scent or not? This smells good. This smells bad. We just don't have a lot of tools to analyze smells, linguistically or scientifically. In fact, there is no way to assess the volume of a scent. There are no instruments that can measure odor levels. We have instruments that can measure the chemicals that are in an odor plume, but that doesn't translate into, at least not at the present time, into what the odor experience is for any individual. Pamela Dalton is a senior scientist at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. 
But when I talked to her, she was not in Philly. She was talking to me from a conference room in Chicago. I'm here for a deposition. I do expert witness work from time to time, and this is an odor case involving people's complaints around uh, landfill. In legal cases involving smells, they have to hire professional noses to make very subjective calls. And it's not like Pamela is a superhuman. Generally, people are pretty good at smelling, much better than we think we are. We can smell at things when there's one or two parts of a fragrance material in a billion parts of air, which is really, really tiny. So we're, we're more sensitive than we believe. You know, dogs may be sensitive to a range of compounds, but humans have much more sensitivity to a much more diverse set of chemicals in the environment. But we don't use scent the way dogs and other animals do. And in part, it's because we're bipedal. Our noses, quite simply, evolved to be farther away from the Earth. We're now at four to five to six feet above the ground, so we're smelling different things, right? We're not smelling things as we were when we were <laughs> loping around on all fours. Yet, still, on occasion, we'll lift our noses to the air and take a sniff. It's just that more often than not, we pay attention to smells that present a threat. Spoiled foods, rot, death, mold. If there's a fire or a gas leak, farts. And so we learned that, you know, we want to stay away from those kinds of odors. We've come to associate scent with something primal and unpleasant. If you ask, hey, do I smell? The collective assumption is that that's a bad thing. We want to avoid smells and smelling. And this mentality goes back to a number of philosophers in the West, from Plato to Aristotle to Kant, who derided our sense of smell as base and secondary, or really like quinary. Historically, it has been the least respected of our senses. And so a lot of folks just try to ignore it. But I think as a species, we have discounted that we really can smell a lot of chemicals at vanishingly trivial concentrations. So we have the capacity to smell things in the parts per billions, but we lack the capacity to talk about them. So much of learning to smell comes from learning how to describe smells. So I was at a party. A, a woman came in who was hugging everybody, and, and she smelled really good, and a number of people told her that she smelled good. And I said, okay, I can tell you that she's wearing this particular brand, and it's from this many years ago, and the reason that she smells cozy and snug is because it's got a lot of ionones in it, and, and she smells sort of like orris, which is the, the aged root of the Florentine iris flower, and it's got a sort of a powdery feeling, so she smells like a hug. And everyone's looking at me, and I was like, I'm not smelling any more than you are. I just have the words to tell you what the brand is when it came out and what's in it. Miranda Gordon is the vice president of marketing at Mon. Mon is a fragrance company because the lion's share of the hundreds and hundreds of designer perfumes that come out each year are made by the same dozen or so companies. Mon has made perfumes for Banana Republic and Armani and a ton of scents for really widespread popular brands you definitely know, like <laughs> and the that we're not allowed to talk about, so don't mention those. For some brands, it's a dirty secret that they contract out their scents to other companies. But I don't think there should be any shame in it. Because sure, most of us have the potential to get really good at smelling, but actually designing a perfume is something entirely different. It's like composing a piece of music or choreographing a dance. 
it is an art. And the professionals make it look easy. Let's start simply. Some perfume ingredients can be very straightforward. Like if you're trying to use a citrus scent, that's pretty easy to get. That scent is extracted from the peel of the fruit with cold pressing. The same way we make olive oil, we can make grapefruit oil or or lemon oil or lime oil or, or mandarin oil. But there are a lot of scents that you can't just get. You can't just press the oil of a mango or a strawberry or a pear or an apple. Like if you pressed an apple peel, you wouldn't get apple oil, you would get apple juice, which is not very fragrant, and you wouldn't want to dab that on yourself. So there are many, many scents that perfumers have to build, molecule by molecule, in a laboratory. There are chemicals that have an apple odor to them. Gino Percantino is one of the perfumers at Mon. If he wants to make an apple scent, he will gather a bunch of smells together, what some perfumers call notes. Combining and mixing those notes to get an authentic apple smell. And a group of notes makes an accord. An accord is a group of ingredients that's usually less than 10 ingredients to try to emulate a specific thing. And there's no one set apple accord. Every perfumer has their own way to make it. Think of it like Gino is painting a picture of an apple. It could be realistic, it could be impressionistic, it could be cartoonish. The apple could be slightly fermented. It could be a yellow apple or a green apple. It could be in a tree, it could be in a pie. Listen to how Gino renders a fig, which is another one of those scents you have to build note by note. Fig is always fun for me because I often work from some of my best coconut. Just coconut. So I'm not talking about like pina colada with pineapple and all that. Just the creamy kind of coconut. If you dial it back and put more pulp into it, a little more juiciness into it, a little more green with some extra woods, because you want that stemmy element of it, and then you've turned a coconut into a fig. And that's the part that's technically impressive. But making a perfume is not just about rendering a good, believable fig. It's then using that fig in a way that's interesting and new. So Gino could situate the fig in a scent that's smoky and leathery, or something powdery and floral, or something lush and green, or include an ingredient that I would have never considered. My favorite ingredient is Szechuan pepper. Really? Um, yeah. Szechuan pepper, it's kind of citrusy. It has a citrusy element. It has an aromatic element. It has a little spicy element. There's a virtuosity in professional perfume. That's the difference between, say, an essential oil from a health food store and a perfume. It's the difference between the pleasure of a single ripe peach and the pleasure of an exquisitely executed risotto. Professional perfume is artistry and intuition and a lot of hard science because some combinations just don't work on a molecular level. If you don't know what you're doing and you take the smell of black currant and the smell of rhubarb and you put it together in a test tube, things are going to interact at the molecular level and it's going to smell like the cat pissed on your weed. In Mon's laboratory in Midtown Manhattan, perfumers and technicians were busily mixing drops from a selection of hundreds and hundreds of notes. The smell of the laboratory was incredible. It wasn't like a perfume counter in a department store. That smells like 50 top 40 radio stations blasting at once. Mon's laboratory smells like an orchestra 
of raw possibilities, composed of both natural and synthetic ingredients. And without derailing this whole story, let me just say there are some controversies in there. Perfume ingredients are considered trade secrets, so they aren't listed on the bottle. And this opacity has caused some worry, because there are ingredients, natural and synthetic alike, that can trigger allergic reactions. And some animal studies have found fragrance chemicals that are probable carcinogens or have been linked to liver, kidney, and lung damage. The perfume industry says that all of the ingredients they use are at such low concentration that they aren't dangerous to human health. But there have been calls to set more limits on the materials perfumers can use. And sure enough, every now and then, an ingredient gets pulled off the market. I look at it as if they're doing some kind of testing with ingredients and and they're being a little restrictive. I think I think there's some value to that if, if it's going to help humanity in, in some way. It ties my hands a little bit on trying to be creative. Gino is operating within a set of constantly shifting constraints. Instruments are being removed from Mann's orchestra all the time. By the different regulatory laws of every country, yes, but also by an ingredient's availability. When a certain scent becomes trendy, it becomes harder to procure. Take Indian sandalwood. It's a delicious natural scent, super popular. There's a drop of Indian sandalwood in pretty much everything on the market. And the challenge with Indian sandalwood is that the trees have to be at least 30 years old before you can harvest them. You can't just go plant more trees and have more oil tomorrow. You've got to wait 30 years. So Indian sandalwood had to be replaced with Australian sandalwood, which doesn't smell the same, or with synthetic sandalwood, which doesn't smell the same. So making a new perfume isn't just unbridled creativity. It's limited by a lot of factors. And at the end of the day, the scent has to sell. Mann's brilliant perfumers probably aren't going to make something that smells like fig and Szechuan peppers. They manufacture pop music. They're trying to make something interesting within the parameters of mainstream taste. Something you'd buy in a Sephora. Or something you'd buy in your grocery store. Because Mann and the dozen or so major fragrance companies don't just make perfume. They work on every product that has a smell. Home care, cleaning, laundry, personal care. Suzanne McCormick is the head of fragrance for Method Products. They make soap and detergent and body wash. And they work with two of the major fragrance houses. Because I kid you not, it is just the same small handful of companies that are crafting all the scents all around us. And this overlap means that trends in high-end perfume affect your dish soap. There is a trickle-down. It's just like how high-end fashion designers will create a look that eventually ends up at H&M. If a fragrance company develops an accord that sells really well, that scent might eventually end up in your face cream or your laundry detergent. Rose had been considered the older fragrance note, and then all the fine fragrance, many fine fragrance brands were bringing it to life in a modern way. And then as you trickle down to our body wash, we have peony, rose water. And a while back, there was sea salt in everything. So we did lime and sea salt was one of our fragrances that we did that continued to do very well. And so, these scent companies are everywhere, making you, your kitchen, and your bathroom smell like citrus and lavender and rose. But this idea of our bodies smelling somewhat interchangeably with our fabric softener and our dishes is relatively recent. We used to have a wildly different concept 
of what it meant to smell good. I guess I could start with the perfumes that shocked me the most, and they were the perfumes of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Barbara Herman is the creative director of Eris Parfum and the author of the book Scent and Subversion. I like to describe what I did in this book was sniff my way through the 20th century. What we think people should smell like is completely cultural, and it's changed over time. In the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, women were marketed perfumes that were more funky. Women smelled like tobacco and leather and, you know, as Jacques Guerlain said about his perfumes, perfume should smell like the underside of my mistress. There was this idea that perfume was supposed to smell funky. Perfumes had ingredients like ambergris, which is oxidized whale vomit, and musk, which is deer sex gland secretion. Now these kinds of smells are made synthetically. But in the early 20th century, people wore the real stuff, which sounds off-putting. But actually, these smells are fascinating. Barbara happened to have some real ambergris in her refrigerator. I mean, it's a very, very hard scent to describe. Some people say there's um, tobacco note. There's obviously a very animalic kind of fecal quality to it, but also slightly metallic and coumarin or like hay-like, slightly sweet. It's more of a feeling than it is a smell for me. It's just like being enveloped in warmth. I loved this smell. I'm like looking at a landscape through a pinhole. Oh, can I see more of it? Yeah, I can't, that's you know? a good way to describe it. I wish I could stick my head in a box full yeah. of it and be like, It's very this is evocative, this. but yeah. For all those weird and gross descriptors, ambergris smells incredible. Most scents, especially naturally occurring ones, are way more nuanced and strange than we'd like to believe. There's a sweetness and sweat a fruitiness in blood. I know, I sound like a psychopath, but there's a really fuzzy line between delicious and off-putting if you pay attention to your nose and forget the fact that this may be whale barf. Because it's sensual and cozy and a lot of, you know, subliminal unconscious effects. I, I can't put them all into words, but if you've experienced them and if you're open to them, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's interesting that people in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s were more willing to wear these strong, animalic smells. It's particularly interesting that they were marketed to women. On the one hand, it's kind of empowering and bold and sensuous, but it also meant these women weren't exactly dousing themselves to go to board meetings. These were scents for the bedroom. And our idea of what femininity should smell like evolved in the 1950s, when a lot of bright and powdery scents came out. Very, like, Doris Day peppy. Florals, huge-ass white florals, (laughs) screaming. And then, like everything else in culture, scent was subverted by the time you get to the 70s, when there was this natural wave of oak moss and patchouli. Then the 1980s were about big, bold fragrances, the kind that, as Rachel Syme puts it, could clear an elevator. And then there was a very important pendulum swing in the 1990s a sea change that mainstream sensibilities have still not recovered from. The 90s was generally the clean decade. This is when perfumes like CK1 came out for men and for women. There was this wave of clean smells that were light and fresh and inoffensive. 
They made you smell like you just showered. Yeah, I mean, there's some great clean perfumes. Like, don't get me wrong, I love to rag on them. But um, Mm. I just think that what perfume meant in the past and what it means now is very different. Clean scents took off in a major way. Exceedingly popular, a lot of money in them. And when perfume just became kind of generally pleasant and non-threatening, more and more companies felt comfortable yoking their prized brand name to it. Industrial perfume creation world, which happened like after the 90s or starting in the 90s when perfumes just got like mass-produced. The celebrity scent thing. And so broadly speaking, we are still stuck there in the fresh and clean era particularly the United States. Oh, we're Puritans. Really? Yeah. To, to smell is to be sensual or, or to be erotic or dirty. That's why fresh and clean is such a big deal in this country. Miranda Gordon at Monaghan. In France, you're sexy if you're a little funky. Here, you're only, you've got to be freshly showered and smell like nothing. And in fact, if you do want to smell like nothing at all, that also involves fragrance. Because even when you're buying a product labeled fragrance-free, that is often not true. A product that's labeled fragrance-free in all likelihood uh, remained a customer of ours and we had to fragrance it in order to cover up the malodors of the functional things in your products. There's probably something in there, it's what we call a masking odor uh, or a masking aroma that's canceling out whatever fishy smell or funky smell or oily smell the ingredients in your face cream might have. Because most things on this earth have a smell. It's just that an industry has developed around avoiding the weird ones. We want to smell fresh and clean and nothing else. And so, yeah, the mainstream perfume market's been stuck in the clean boom for some decades now. But there's been a quiet revolution in the last 15-ish years On the fringes of perfume, an indie scene has blossomed. Okay, so now we're going to smell tomato leather. This is meant to be literally a combination of those two smells. At her San Francisco perfume store, Tiger Lily, Antonia Cole sells scents that are deeply, deeply odd. This fragrance is inspired by the printmaker's studio and by India Inc. Inspired by the god of the afterlife in Egypt. And the smell she imagined would be inside the tomb. This is what it smells like when you're waiting for the ferry to take you to Seattle. There's so many more unusual scents in the store. We've got stuff that smells like campfires and... Ooh! Thousands of independent perfumers have started popping up. Many of them taking artistic risks that a designer brand wouldn't dare attempt. There are hardcore boutiques like Tiger Lily scattered around the world. And they almost act like oddball record shops for the underground music nerds who want to sniff the strange stuff. It literally smells like a bat's cave. It's like a strong petrichor with, where you feel the water on the dirt and the stone in the cave. And then it also represents, um, it's a, fruit, a day in the life of a fruit bat. So you also get the fallen fruit, like rotting banana, and you get a um, leather that represents the bat's wing. In this relatively new movement, there are a lot of perfumers who make scent on the side, as a passion project. That's the case for the perfumer who made the bat scent. She has a day job. She's also a bat behavioral scientist and an orchid farmer. So yes, she teaches at the University of Washington in the behavioral sciences, and she she specializes in bats. And she does perfume on the side. Yeah. Wow. And wins awards for it. As Antonia and I sniffed around Tiger Lily's cabinet of curiosities, a customer rushed in breathlessly. Hi, how are you doing? 
what you're here for. I know, I call them the crazy lady. And Mauricio, I think, has it for you in the back. This customer was looking for a niche scent that had been put on hiatus because... The perfumer also is a cybersecurity expert and has a new job, just got promoted. And so he's so busy he can't make any more of it. So she called today and was like, do you have any left? People have really strong reactions to perfume. It's an emotional thing. And it's not just for that customer at Tiger Lily. We're all wired for it. You snip these molecules in, they bind to a receptor. Pamela Dalton from the Monell Chemical Senses Center again. That that signal is passing through a portion of the brain called the limbic system, which is responsible for emotional responses. So it's that emotional response that becomes so tightly associated with something that we're smelling. When I went to my college reunion, I was struck that my old dorm hallway still smelled the same. A waft of bergamot always reminds me of an ex. Eucalyptus brings me back to childhood trips to visit my grandma in San Francisco. We all have this superpower to use scent as a gateway to the past. But in learning to smell and learning to talk about smell, we can experience a vivid present. To stop and smell the roses, sure, but also stop and smell the garbage. Really. And the couch, and the hallway, and the shampoo, and the skin of a mandarin. The sweat, and the rain, and the pleather, and the brick. To smell where you are, right now. I think a lot of people are like, I don't like perfume, I have no interest in it. The first time I met Rachel Syme, in that Sephora, in Union Square, I was one of those people. And for me, I'm like, wow, like, it, I think it's an art form and I'm fascinated by it endlessly and I love what people make. And even here, I, I just like love exploring all the different creations. And that's why I buy something in a bottle because it's something somebody made. It's like buying art. The second time I saw Rachel, she gave me a little bottle of perfume. She warned me it was the kind of thing you couldn't get at a Sephora. The bottle was plain. I had never heard of the brand. At first sniff, it was cozy cedar and leather. It was riding on the back of a motorcycle through the woods. Another sniff and it smelled like gasoline and it was actually sickening. It nearly gave me a headache. I abandoned the scent for months, but recently came back and smelled again. And this time something malted came out of it, almost gourmand. I can't pin it down. It changes with my mood. It changes with my skin. It changes with my day, with my surroundings and the weather and the cacophony of smells all around me that I, by and large, used to ignore. A pocket, a piece of paper, words from yesterday. There's a portrait Painted on the things we love. Articles of Interest was written and performed by Avery Truffleman. Edited by Chris Berube with additional edits by Joe Rosenberg and Emmett Fitzgerald. Scored by Ray Royal. Fact-checked by Tom Colligan with additional fact-checking by Graham Haysha. Mix and tech production by Sharif Youssef with additional mixing by Catherine Ray Mondo. Our opening and closing songs are by Sasami. 
Special thanks this episode to master perfumer Mandy Aftel, perfume critic Chandler Burr, perfume bottle designer Chad Levine, Dana Bruno at Mann, and especially Bibi Praval at Mann. Insights, support, and edits from the whole 99PI team, including Vivian Leigh, Sean Riel, Abby Madan, Kurt Colstead, Delaney Hall, and Katie Mingle. And Roman Mars is the fresh and clean scent of this whole series. There's a portrait painted on the things we love. Gender and fragrance is as artificial a social construct as gender in society. Amen, Miranda Gordon, VP of Marketing at Mon. Nobody ever said that flowers were only for girls, or, or actually we did say, the industry said, but I don't know that the globe agrees that flowers are for girls and woods are for boys. There's no way a given gender is supposed to smell, because we all just kind of smell like our skin and sweat. The distinction between cologne and perfume is just about the concentration of oil, It's not that cologne is any more masculine than perfume. It's just the way it's marketed. Men and women both used to wear a lot of perfume, usually to mask the fact that they didn't bathe. Until one man decided that perfume was for women. But in the course of that, he also would um, bathe every day, which was taken at the time, the late 18th century, as a rather ridiculous vanity and indeed something that might be even dangerous for your health to um, wash that often. That's author Ian Kelly. And he says there was this one historic gentleman who decreed that men should smell as plain as possible. In fact, he also thought men should dress as plain as possible. That to be manly was to look boring. He, yes, happened to be the right person at the right time to be the center of this um, shift in fashion. Your next articles of interest are suits. Suits. 